encourage you to take out your Bible, turn over to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2. As we talk about a royal priest for God, you know, as I think about um, the news I watched this week about William Shatner. William Shatner is going to go up in a rocket. Captain Kirk, finally, right? And during a, a, a meeting that he had with a panel discussion, he was asked about that. He said, my friend Jason Ehrlich came to me about a year and a half ago, and he said he was seeing these rockets with people going up in space. What about Captain Kirk? Well, he, he said he was fearful, and he said, Jason, for God's sake, man, nobody cares if Captain Kirk goes to space. It was 55 years ago, but I'm doing well, but maybe I should go up in space. And so now that Jeff Bezos is gone, he's going to follow, and he will be the oldest person to ever go into outer space when he goes. It's just an amazing story. Well, you know, like William Shatner and Captain Kirk, you and I, we're on a great adventure. We're on a mission. We're on a mission to exalt God. We're on a mission to become more like Jesus. And in turn, as we pass through this world as aliens and strangers, as it talks about today, we're to bring other people with us onto the other side into heaven. So our scripture reading is found in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter Chapter 2, as we go through the book of 1 Peter, verse by verse, we're looking at verses 9 through 12 this morning, verses 9 through 12. Peter the Apostle says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Verse 11, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And may God add his blessing as we read his word today. This morning, we're going to look at how Peter answers two very important questions, and I encourage you to take out your outline and take notes, if you would, and fill in the blanks. He's going to talk about two very important questions about our journey as foreigners, as strangers, as pilgrims, as aliens on this earth. Question number one, who are we as Christ followers on a mission? <clears throat> Excuse me. Peter wants us to get set in our minds who we are, our identity in Jesus Christ. And that's what he's been doing through chapter one. That's what he's going to do here as well. Because for us to persevere, to make it to the end, to hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant, we have to know who we are in our mind. And that's one thing that will help us carry us through to the end. Verse nine says, but you are a chosen race. Look at these four things, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. First of all, in your outline to this point, a chosen race. You and I are a chosen race. In contrast to unbelievers, Peter swivels to the fact that you and I have been chosen by God out of his sovereign love and grace and mercy. He looked down and he knew your name and he called you into his kingdom. To summarize those four characteristics there found at the beginning of verse 9 of chapter 2, God views his chosen believers. I want to say at the outset, these are descriptions of Israel and the church parallels some of what is meant for Israel. You'll see these four same things as descriptors in the Old Testament about Israel. 
But while we are like Israel in the church, we are not Israel. That's very important. Some evangelicals teach that the church, based on these verses and others, have replaced Israel because of their disobedience to God and that all the promises and covenants that were given to Israel are fully applicable to us as New Testament believers in the church. This is called replacement theology or supersessionism, which I am diametrically against because the scripture teaches us in Romans 9, 10, 11 and Revelation that God has unfulfilled promises and that Israel is going to come back. In fact, in one place in Revelation, it says 144,000 Jews during the tribulation period will come to faith in Christ and they will be the proclaimers of Jesus as the Messiah here on earth during that time. <clears throat> so we're, um, that's an unbiblical uh, uh, doctrine and it makes a grave mistake to say that God is finished with Israel at this point. But while the church is not Israel, we have parallels and we are like Israel as God works in this church age. God chose us out of a sovereign will, as I said, with his grace and mercy to save us. In John 15, 16, I love this verse. It says, you did not choose me, Jesus said, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So, a chosen people. Second of all, we are royal priests. Royal priests. And we talked about this last week, but I want to go in greater depth because verse 9 goes in greater depth on this. We said that all of us who are born again, who have Christ in our hearts, we are all ministers for him. Doesn't matter whether you're paid like I am or not, we go out and we are ministers for Christ. And so I want to spend some time here on how the Jewish priesthood through Aaron and the Levites give us examples of how we are royal priests today. So we're going to dig a little bit in the Old Testament, but apply that to us currently in our lives. And, and we won't turn to these, but you can listen in Exodus 28 and 29. God chose the Levites to be his royal priesthood. The descendants of Aaron would keep the priesthood going and alive for the Jewish people for centuries. In Leviticus 8 and 9, God shows a picture of what it looks like to ordain and inaugurate men into the priesthood. God gives us a contrast between a priest who is not following the Lord and one who is, so we can learn from it. In Malachi 2, you can see these verses on the screen. True instruction was in the mouth of the priest and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned away from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But then verse 8, he shows us the contrast. But you have turned aside from the way. You've caused many to stumble by your instruction. You've corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. He lays out what a priest is like, a godly one, and what one who serves himself is like. Here are some characteristics of an Old Testament priest that you and I, we should be aware of, that we should imitate in our current situation in our lives. First of all, we are to be cleansed, cleansed. The priest always had to offer sacrifices on behalf of their sin 
and their spiritual condition before they could serve anyone else, before they could perform rituals, before they could sacrifice on behalf of others to have their sins forgiven in the Old Testament. To be used of God, you and I, we have to be clean vessels. We have to be cleansed. Then they were clothed for service, clothed for service. Aaron's sons had to be consecrated and dedicated by wearing the proper attire. There's an undergarment that they call linen breeches. It was a sign of sexual purity, righteousness, virtue, and godliness as part of the things that they had to put on as priests. Psalm 132.9 says, Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. You and I as New Testament priests are to be clothed with, clothed with righteousness according to Revelation 4, 5, and 11. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 4, 24, and to put on the new self. So when we invite Christ into our lives and the Holy Spirit comes in to indwell us, we put on that new self. And it's created after the likeness of God and true righteousness, which means right living and pursuing holiness in our lives. So as believers, that is what we put on as his royal priest. And then consecrated or dedicated for service. So they were cleansed. They were clothed for service, but they had to make sure they were dedicated before they went before the people and before God. In Leviticus 8.30, then Moses took some of the anointing oil and of the blood that was on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron and his garments and also on his sons and his son's garments. So he consecrated Aaron and his garments and his sons and his son's garments with him. Moses was called on by God to dedicate Aaron and his sons for the priesthood, down to the clothing, down to the sprinkling of the anointing oil and the blood. This is the way, God's way of identifying his presence and power that it was resting on these priests. And for us as New Testament believers, we are anointed by the indwelling Holy Spirit that lives within us. Just as the Old Testament priests had special privileges, so does the New Testament priest, us, have special privileges as well because we are chosen by God. An Old Testament priest, the presence of God was evidenced by his Shekinah glory. In Isaiah 6, it says that the, the smoke filled the temple and the doorpost shook because the presence of God was there. In the tabernacle, uh, as the Israelites were going through the wilderness, they had uh, the pillar of fire at night and the cloud by day to tell them when to move and where to stay. And that was God's presence with them at all times. New Testament believers, we come to God and we boldly approach his throne with our requests. Sometimes uh, we do that in the name of Jesus and through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. It's something that unbelievers cannot do. They have to repent. They have to receive God's gift of eternal life before they can have access to the throne of God. For us as believers and as priests in Hebrews 4.16, it says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's a great, great promise that we can hold on to. That no matter what we're going through, we have access to the very throne room of God. Two more characteristics very quickly that New Testament believers have that parallel the priests of the Old Testament. The Old Testament priests were equipped. They were equipped. They were prepared. They were trained. They were mentored. 
for service in the temple. They were to perform certain rituals and ceremonies, and they did that with on-the-job training, watching the other priests and how they did it as they were learning, and then eventually given the responsibility. In Leviticus 8.33, it says that the new priests, after ordination and inauguration, had to wait seven days in preparation to serve as a full-fledged priest. Saul, as we know him as the Apostle Paul, you remember when he was converted on the road to Damascus. He was trained. Some believe that he had the equivalent to two doctorates in Jewish theology, studied under one of the, the, the greatest rabbis, Gamaliel, at that time. And he had all that knowledge, and yet he didn't know Christ. But when he came to Christ, he admits that he had to take some time to prepare himself before he did ministry mostly to the Gentiles. In Galatians 1, here's Paul's testimony. But when God, who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor do I, did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away from Arabia and returned again to Damascus. There was a period there. Some believe it's a couple years that they, that Paul was meeting with God and Jesus Christ and he was revealing to him all the things that he needed to know. You see, the heart's preparedness is expressed in our call to self-sacrifice. So we have to prepare ourselves. And Jesus said, how do we do that? We deny ourselves daily, we take up the cross, and we follow him. We have to deny ourselves, take up the cross, and follow him. And it's a daily process that we go through to prepare ourselves to be the priests that God wants us to be. One last example is that the Old Testament priests were called the strict obedience to listen and follow God's commands. They were not to deviate. They were not to put their spin on it. They were to follow it, obey it, and proclaim it the way God laid it out. We saw in Leviticus 10, if you read that chapter where Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, they decide to offer some different strange fire as an offering to the Lord, and immediately the Lord struck them down before everyone else and killed them. You see, New Testament priests are to have a high regard for God's word. We're to have a genuine walk with God and to share the good news of Christ. And as priests, as it tells us in Revelation and other places, we're going to rule with God in his kingdom. And then we're to be, thirdly, a holy nation. A holy nation. Nation. The Greek word there, ethnos, means people group. Our position as God sees us now and into the future is that of being holy. Positionally, God sees that we're already holy, that we're transformed, and he already has a place for us in heaven where we'll be perfect. But here in the now, in the current time, we have to pursue holiness. We have to work at it. We have this thing called the old nature, the flesh, that we have to deal with on a daily basis. And when we say we are Christ followers, what does that mean? Well, we avoid the distractions of this world. We avoid addictions. We avoid getting drunk. We are sexually pure and celibate until we get married. We're faithful to our spouse and building a godly relationship. We're honest in our business dealings at work and in the community. That we're not being stained and corrupted by this world, but 
pushing back the darkness in our life and impacting others for him. And the fourth thing he says in verse 9 is that we are a people possessed. We're a people possessed by God. You see, when you know who you are in Christ and whose you are in relationship to God saving us, it changes the game plan dramatically. It changes how we look at life. Possessed here means that we've been purchased and acquired at a tremendously high price. God chose us and paid for us to be in relationship with him. There's a great Christian author. His name is Philip Keller. You may have read some of his books. And he tells a story about the day that he bought 30 sheep. And his neighbor and him decided to get together and they sat on his dusty corral fence and look at these beautifully bred sheep, very strong sheep that he had just purchased. And while they were sitting there, the man turned to him, to Philip, and gave him his uh, killing knife, the knife that you use to kill a lamb or a sheep. And so he said to him, you need now to put your personal earmark on your sheep. And so he knew exactly what he meant, because each shepherd would take that knife and then he would take that ear of a sheep. He would wrestle that sheep down. And he said it was painful for both him and the sheep, but he'd have to put a hole through that ear of the sheep. And he'd make a, a design in there so that when they were in a flock of other sheep, he could recognize who were the sheep that he possessed. He says it's not the most pleasant procedure to do that. But from the mutual suffering and the indelible mark of ownership was made it could never be erased. And from then on, every sheep that came into my possession, he said, would bear my mark. There's a striking parallel to this in the Old Testament. When a slave decided to, of his free will, uh, be a, a servant to his master, they would take him over to a doorpost and they put his ear against the door and with an awl, they would punch a hole in that servant's ear as a mark that he was a free will servant or slave of this man. As we think about that, for every one of us who knows Jesus personally as a lamb slain from the foundations of the world, he marked our soul with the blood that dripped from his wounded body. Philip Keller says, you see that that was the shepherd dying for his sheep. Just acknowledge him today and know that he's your possession and you are his possession. What an amazing thought to think God could see our human condition, our sinful situation and redeem us and put us in his forever family through the blood of Christ. As believers, we need to discern what is good for the temple of the Holy Spirit and glorifying to God. One of the things that I, that I see among Christians that we need to be very clear about is just because something in our society is legal doesn't necessarily mean it's always good for us. I think of some of the issues of gambling and the damage that that's done to many, many families. A number of years ago when I, lived in Atlantic, when I lived in New Jersey and I took teenagers down to the Atlantic City Rescue Mission as they started their casinos there, um, the man that I worked with said that in the first few days of the casinos they had 70 beds and a short while later they ended up with 700 beds because people would show up and lose everything and didn't even have enough money to get a bus ticket home. So we see the effects of gambling. We see the legalization of marijuana. You know, how does that affect the temple of, our, of the body? 
temple of the Holy Spirit that we have. And then certain movie choices and music choices, how we consume and interact with social media. These are things that we need to think about as being a priest for him. As we think about the body of Christ and we're all part of it, you know, a chosen people, you know, possessed by God and all these things, describing not only as priests, but also as believers in the body of Christ, unity is important. And unity does not eliminate diversity. Not all children and the family are alike, nor all the stones in building identical. In fact, it's diversity that gives beauty and richness to a family or building. The absence of diversity is not unity, it's uniformity. And uniformity is not what God wants, that's dull. It's fine when a group of singers sing in unison the melody, but it's even richer when they sing with harmony as well. So Christians can differ and still get along. All who cherish the one faith and seek to honor the one Lord can love each other and walk together. God may call us to different ministries or to use different methods, but we still love each other and seek to present a united witness to the world. After all, one day we're all going to be in heaven. We should learn to get along with each other right down here on earth, right? Before we get to that place. St. Augustine said it perfectly in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, and all things, charity or love. So here's the application. Are you living your life currently as who God says you are to be with confidence? Are you and I living our lives currently as who God says we are with confidence? As we think about who we are in Christ, as we've talked about in this message so far and in the message previously, we need to remind ourselves constantly who we are in Christ. The second and last question we'll look at today is, what do we do on our mission? You know, what are we to do? In 1 Peter 2.9, the second part of that verse, it says that you may proclaim the excellencies of God who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You and I, we are to proclaim his excellency. Because Christ saved us and gave us all these spiritual privileges, we're to proclaim his name. Proclamation, I love the way it reads in the Greek. It means to publish, to advertise. You and I, we're the best advertisement for Christ to the world around us. For some, we're the only Bible they will ever read our lives as we intersect with them. You and I are to be the advertisers of Christ by our words and our deeds. And proclaiming carries with it actions, actions that are becoming of a royal person and the ability to perform powerful and heroic deeds. Remember that Jesus is our hero of heaven who saved us and we are called to imitate him. At the end of verse nine, it says that we've been called out of darkness into the light. Darkness means ignorance. Darkness means lack of understanding. And people who don't know Christ don't have the ability to do that without the spirit of Christ in their life. They follow the ways of their feelings and their desires and their passions. And it's the natural way to go. So we shouldn't be surprised about how some people act or what they do because that's the logical outcome of their life without Christ. Spiritually, they're stuck in that situation. Proverbs 16.25 says there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. So we are to live life. We live as God claims us to be. You and I, we live as God claims us to be. If we're his, 
then how are we supposed to act? It says in verse 10 of 1 Peter 2, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Before we knew Christ, we were not a people. God did not recognize us as part of his forever family before we came to Christ. But because God chose us by his love, grace, mercy, and compassion, we are now a people. We are God's people. Take your Bible, turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. These verses aren't on the screen, but we've looked at these verses a few times recently, but they fit so well in paralleling with what Peter is saying, not only here, but throughout his book, to drive home this idea, the big deal of why we need to be united, but also uh, we need to realize who we are in Christ. And when we do and see what he redeemed us from, then it changes our perspective. Ephesians chapter 2, look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Verse 16, it might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. The Gentiles and the Jews were told in the Old Testament not to have anything, to, well, the Jews were told not to have anything to do with the Gentiles because they were not God's people. But now Jesus has come and he tears down that wall and those Gentiles and those Jews who are believers are now one man united in the body of Christ, what we now call the church. And that's what he did at the cross. And so as we think about that, as God's people, we're reconciled to God no matter what we did, that there's no sin so bad in our lives that God's grace cannot reach down and forgive us. And that's why it's important for us to reconcile with one another, to not harbor bitterness toward one another, to not take up on somebody else's offense on their behalf and hold bitterness or grudges. That's why we have to go to the person. We have to set aside our pride and we have to do everything we can to reconcile because that's what Jesus did for us. And then he says in verse 11 that we abstain, we abstain from the passions of the flesh. We abstain or show self-control. In 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Notice he says, Beloved, as dearly loved children of God and the other believers, Peter says. Eight times you'll see throughout this book Peter talks and reminds us how much God loves each and every one of us. He calls them sojourners. Sojourners. Another word you'll see in other versions is aliens. It's an interesting word because it means alongside the house. You and I, we live alongside the world and those who live in the world, but we are not of the world. We live alongside them, but we're not in that house. We're not part of that group. He says there that we're exiles. Exiles means that we travel to visit someone a distance away. 
but that we're not citizens there. And so at some point after that visit, we head home, back to our home. Our home is heaven. Philippians 3.20 says that we're citizens of heaven. In Hebrews chapter 11, I think so much of those new Old Testament saints who had very little revelation to work on and to follow God. Yes, they had prophets. Yes, they had sometimes visions and dreams, but they didn't have the written word to go to at any time. And it says there in Hebrews 11, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland, heaven. And if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city, a place in heaven with their name on it. So as living in exile, we're to abstain. That word means to hold back, to show self-restraint, to have self-control with our desires and passions of the flesh. Evangelist D.L. Moody said this, I have more trouble with D.L. Moody than with any man I know. And if we're honest, that's true of us, right? We got more issues to deal with. We need to take care of our backyard before we talk about the neighbor's yard, right? And so Paul said the same thing in Romans 7. He said, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do, want the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that is dwelling within me. And so that's the battle between the old nature and the new nature. Back up there in 1 Peter, though, verse 11, he talks about, and he uses this word, which, in the middle of the verse, which means this old sinful nature that's battling this new nature that's within us. Wage war, in verse 11, means to carry out a long-term military campaign. In other words, this isn't going to be a short skirmish. This is something that we're going to battle with until we breathe our last breath. And then he says, abstain from the fleshly lusts. That word there gives us the image of an army of lustful terrorists who are waging an internal search and destroy mission to conquer our soul. That's if we let our passions, our fleshly desires be unleashed in our life. We let Satan get a foothold he can use that. And then he talks about your soul, the place where life makes up its mind, where life makes up its mind, where the decisions are made before the actions take place. We're in a battle for our minds and who will control it? Is it going to be the flesh? Is it going to be Satan? Or is it going to be the Holy Spirit? And it's up to us to choose who's going to win each and every day in our lives. Lastly, we see this. We live a life that's unashamed. We live a life that's unashamed. Peter ends this section on a very positive note. Look at verse 12 of 1 Peter 2. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, 
they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Listen carefully to effectively evangelize. People need to witness the daily changes in our life that makes us more like Jesus Christ. They need to see the authenticity. They need to see the transparency. They need to see the character that Christ is forming in our lives. And how do we do that? Well, when we blow it at work, we own it, we confess it, and we make things right. When we say something wrong in a conversation with our kids, with our spouse, or someone else, we own it, we confess it, and then we ask for forgiveness. When we're caught making a mistake, we need to own it and confess it and make amends. People will respect you more than you'll ever know, and we need to remind ourselves that we're not called to be perfect in this life, we're called to be blameless, which means that we own our actions, we confess it, and we make things right. And people will respect us exponentially if you're willing to do that. He says there in verse 12 that we're to be honorable. Honorable. I love this word in the Greek. It means the loveliest kind of visible goodness. A beautiful word. The loveliest kind of visible goodness. And we display goodness. We show God's attribute of goodness by living our lives righteously and pursuing holiness. It says that we're to be winsome, uh, a way to make people curious, and then we engage them in relationship. Gentiles, he's not talking about a people group, but people who are outside the kingdom of heaven, who are unbelievers. He says evildoers. These are people who accuse and antagonize Christians. We're going to study in our connect group today uh, for the adults at uh, 1045 about the church and its early persecutions. And these verses are talking about these same things at the same time. You see, what was said about the early Christians in the Roman Empire was very derogatory. These are some of the rumors that went around and the things that they used to persecute Christians in the Roman Empire in the first century. They were told that the Christians were rebels against the Roman government, that they wanted to overthrow it. The Christians were practicing cannibals. Think about that, that they engaged in incest, that they engaged in subversive activities that threatened the economy and the social progress of the Roman Empire. The Christians opposed slavery and infanticide. You see, it was common in that day that if you had a baby and you didn't like the sex of it or there was something wrong with the baby mentally or physically handicapped, you just put it outside in the elements or take it to the garbage dump. And Christians would come along and scoop them up and foster them and eventually formed what we know as orphanages today. Christians were practicing atheism because they didn't recognize Caesar as God. Riots broke out in the book of Acts when the Christians came along and removed the demons from this woman who was a fortune teller and they were making money off of her. And because of that, they brought riots against the Christians. There was another place where they were burning the books of witchcraft and the people that were silversmiths were worried because their God, Artemis, they weren't selling very many of those things because Christians had come and said, this is idolatry. And so they faced riots and persecution. And then in verse 12, it says, so then the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, when they speak against you as believers who live for Christ in this world, this is what, you, what you're getting. It says, you may prove the unbelievers wrong as you stand for the truth. 
you may prove the validity of the gospel and you will have a platform to share your personal witness for Christ. Alexander McLaren, 19th century Scottish preacher said this, the world takes its notions of God most of all from the people who say that they belong to God's family. They read us a great deal more than they read the Bible. They see us, they only hear about Jesus Christ. The last two words or two phrases there are to glorify God. The idea is if, we, if they witness our good deeds, it would cause them to glorify God. Maybe that means and some believe that they come to faith in Christ. Others say that when they stand before the judgment seat of God, they will admit that those Christians were glorifying God and were furthering God's kingdom because we know in Philippians 2 that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess at some point that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. And then you see the day of visitation. I wish I had more time to unpack that, but we don't. But this is an Old Testament idea of God visiting man. Suffice it to say that some believe this could be God bringing blessing or judgment when he comes directly down to man. It's found in the same idea in the New Testament. Others believe it can be backed up by scripture. This is God's day of judgment where he pours out all of his wrath and anger upon the earth. But at that day, people who are here, who are non-believers, will have to give credit to the believers because their good deeds reflect and glorify God the Father. What a great verse. As Peter ends this section, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. There's a great old hymn of the faith that says, when we see Christ, and here's the chorus, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. Our application today on this point is, are we mentally and spiritually prepared for the battle ahead? as we live as strangers in this world, as people look at us differently because we try to live for Jesus the best way we can, are we mentally and spiritually prepared for the battle ahead? Peter's working hard at helping us design a mindset that will be trial, tribulation, and persecution proof, a mindset that will help us to endure to the end no matter what comes our way so we can be a light on a hill for the gospel of Christ. Here's our key thought as we close. Are we prepared to live as possessed by God, knowing as we journey through this life, we make our home in heaven? If we keep that in the background of our lives, and we know that there's a better place for us, no matter what happens here, it will help us to persevere. To effectively evangelize, people need to witness the daily changes in our lives. Let's bow for prayer. As we think of this section of scripture and who we are in Christ and all that that reflects and means, maybe here today, maybe you say, you know, I've been struggling with some things in my old nature, some old habits, some things that aren't glorifying to God. And as Peter says here, we need to abstain. We need to put them away. We need to clothe ourselves with the new nature, put on the righteousness of God that we were created to be as believers. 
maybe as every head bowed and every eye is closed, maybe you're here today and you're struggling with an area of your life and you know it's not pleasing to the Lord and you just need to, to give it over to him so you can be all that God wants you to be in this life. If you're like that, just slip your hand up. No one's looking around. I want to pray for you. Yes. Anyone else? Yes. Some struggles, some areas of your life that you just need to get under control. Yes. Anyone else? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for those that have shared their need, Lord. You know their heart. You know what they need to do, Lord. And I pray that you will just uh, encourage them through your spirit. Help them to take uh, the promises of your word and to look for the way of escape out of these things and to diligently put a new habit in their life to replace this bad habit, this thing that's keeping them from abstaining from the flesh so that they can be the one who's honorable, who lives beautifully in goodness before the world around us so that people can quickly identify there's something different about this person and it make them curious to ask about the faith that's within them. For all of us, Lord, help us. Help us to, to learn how to glorify you more. Help us to, to go out and speak the gospel not only with words but through our deeds so that people who are thirsting and hungry for the truth would be interested to know how they could become believers in Christ. We pray and ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.